Welcome to the Voices of Wall Street podcast, a show uncovering the news and trends that matter most for companies and their stocks across tech, media, retail, gaming, and more. I'm Tim Stenevec, and in this episode, we're taking a deep dive into one of the coolest companies to cover, Amazon. Amazon stock has been on a tear since the beginning of the pandemic. More and more people are staying at home, so they're ordering more from Amazon. The company's stock is up nearly 80% since March, and Amazon's founder and CEO Jeff Bezos has added tens of billions of dollars to his net worth as the pandemic has dragged on. We spoke with Tom Forte, equity research analyst at DA Davidson, about some of the top catalysts and risk for the stock, Amazon's ambitions in autonomous tech, and its strategy for media assets, including Prime Video and Twitch. Yeah, remember, Amazon owns Twitch. We also spoke with John Orand, media reporter at Sports Business Journal. Part of Amazon's media game plan has been to experiment with live sports programming. Big Tech has been dipping its toes into sports content as cord cutting puts pressure on incumbent cable networks, and Amazon has arguably been the most aggressive. Here's our chat with Tom Forte about his outlook for the stock. Tom, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So you have a buy rating on Amazon, but a price target of twenty six twenty five for the stock. The stock, though, already well above that, even crossed the $3,300 a share mark earlier this week. So I guess my question is, is Amazon appropriately priced right now? So A, that's an excellent question. And B, here's how I think about it. COVID-19 essentially injected Amazon with growth hormone or was like injecting Amazon with growth hormone to the extent that it's reignited growth for the business in a way that rolling out one day shipping did not. So I think the challenge for investors and the challenge that I'm grappling with for Amazon is to what extent does this surge in sales? What's the duration of it? And then within the different product opportunities for Amazon, first-party retail, third-party retail, uh, advertising, and cloud computing, all of which have very different margins, how does this COVID-19 impact all of them? So I think it is challenging right now. We know that Amazon's getting the benefit for demand and for sales from COVID-19, but it's unclear at this time the duration and how it's impacting each individual line of business that has a distinct margin profile. And certainly a lot of people know Amazon for the retail side, but it's, and it's the biggest part of the company's revenue source. But when it comes to profits, it's not even close to its most profitable arm. That's its cloud business, Amazon Web Services, AWS. How does, how does the COVID-19 pandemic, how has it affected AWS? Have we seen uh, a, a catalyst there uh, because of, of people working from home or anything like that? So an excellent question. Uh, my colleague, Andy Nowinski, did a CIO survey. And one of the questions we asked CIOs was, how has COVID-19 impacted your spending? And it doesn't look to have been a catalyst. It's clearly been a catalyst for usage when you think about the cloud's influence or the how the cloud is being used 
to enable consumers to work remotely and learn remotely, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's been a catalyst for spending for CIOs. And the reason I think that's the case is that there are elements of cloud spending that I would say are discretionary. So you saw this, for example, with Etsy, and they were using the Google Cloud, uh, not AWS, but I think it applies to both of them. So originally, because they had their own servers and they were transitioning to Google, it was cost accretive. And then over time, it was beneficial, but to the extent that their engineers had incremental computing power, um, they didn't necessarily get a tremendous cost benefit from switching over to the cloud. So on the notion that in a challenging economic environment, discretionary spending, including cloud, may not do as well. So clearly usage is fantastic, but I think the sales, it's less clear to me that it will also be fantastic. There's There's been a lot of discussion in recent days about the increase in market cap of Amazon. But that conversation has come in the context of Jeff Bezos's increase in wealth. And even Mackenzie Bezos, who owns a good portion of Amazon stock as well, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife, who got a good portion of that in their divorce. She's on track to become one of the wealthiest, well, the wealthiest woman in the world. Amazon stock is higher by 60% close to uh, this year alone. Are there antitrust challenges that emerge when the company's market cap is regularly around 1.5 and you know potentially getting to $2 trillion in the near future? So the, I definitely believe there are regulatory concerns. I um, hadn't thought of it in that framework. That's an interesting framework on market cap. Uh, here's how I think about it. The four horsemen of big tech, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, I think you almost, there's no debate that they have undue influence on consumers' lives globally. And it'll be very interesting on July 27th when the CEOs from those four organizations uh, participate in the House Judiciary Committee uh, on this very matter. So as far as Amazon in particular, I think you're seeing a lot of uh, suggestions that they're using their data to the benefit of their first party retail sales and to the detriment of their third party sellers. On that thesis for anti-competitive, I would argue that that is a weak one to the extent that Amazon realizes that they make more money when a third party sells on its platform. You see this more than half the units sold on their platform are third party and the rate of growth in units is faster third party than first party. So explain that a little bit because I don't think anyone, everyone realizes when they're buying something on Amazon that they're not necessarily buying something from Amazon. Excellent point. I think people realize whether or not it's prime eligible, meaning can I get it in two days or less versus will I, you know, will I have to wait longer? Although that's changed with COVID-19. Uh, and they don't realize, to your point, am I buying the product from Amazon? or am I buying the product on Amazon's platform, but from someone else? So there are a large number of sellers uh, on Amazon's platform, and many send the merchandise that they intend to sell to consumers to Amazon's fulfillment centers so that Amazon is able to get that product to consumers on a two-day basis. 
And it's this marketplace uh, component of Amazon that enables it to have such a large variety, a large selection of merchandise. And the antitrust argument I've seen is that Amazon is using its data. So Amazon determines that they're selling a lot of AAA Energizer and Duracell batteries. So Amazon decides to make an Amazon Basics AAA battery. Um, again, I think that Amazon realizes the importance. They're getting the commission on the sale when someone else sells on their platform. And the margin of that commission is much higher than when Amazon sells the product itself, which is why I don't believe that they're engaging in this practice that they're being accused of. That's so interesting because one thing you didn't mention was potentially spinning off AWS as a potential way to shield itself from uh, regulatory scrutiny. Is, is that still something that analysts are thinking could happen? Because if they were to, to spin off this business, it would be a massive profitable business and it would still be the, the largest provider of cloud in the world. So if you think of the history of AWS, and it was a business born out of Amazon retail's need for computing power and giving the opportunity. Netflix is a great example. They're kind of the poster child for AWS, where by using the collective purchasing power for essentially server capacity, it enabled Netflix to grow very quickly at a much more affordable rate than if they had to build the server farms themselves. So I think that to your point, uh, if this antitrust um, concern results in a separation of Amazon retail and Amazon cloud computing, an argument can be made when you look at the software as a service valuations in uh, technology uh, versus e-commerce even, that uh, it could be accretive or it could cause the value of Amazon shares to go up, which I think is fascinating. Tom, I got to get your take on Amazon's foray into autonomous vehicles. Recently acquired Zooks for, I believe, just about a billion dollars. And then it also has this stake in, in Rivian. Now, I see the stake in Rivian. That makes sense because Rivian makes these delivery vans uh, and Amazon has already signed on to to have these delivery vehicles made by Rivian in the coming years. But, but how does the acquisition of Zooks or, or even interest in autonomous vehicles fit into the big picture of Amazon? The way, and this is an excellent question, the way that I think about it is as follows. So some time ago, Amazon was on 60 Minutes and they were talking about drone delivery. Yeah, I mean, I'll and never forget it. It's the Sunday, Sunday night before Cyber Monday, Thanksgiving, um, and, more than five years ago. And I would argue that at that point in time, Amazon realized that the Achilles heel in its business model was its over-reliance on a duopoly run by FedEx and UPS. So to the extent that FedEx and UPS still raise rates with impunity, even during the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009, Amazon realized it needed to come up with a solution to one day address this Achilles heel and drone delivery is that type of solution. So I think that today, COVID-19 has pointed out a different Achilles heel in Amazon's business model and its reliance on human physical labor. So to the extent that they can automate it with 
potentially autonomous delivery, I think that would help them similar to the way that drone delivery may help them address the cost inflation they have um, from UPS and from FedEx from a delivery standpoint. Now, I think that automation in general is a, you know, a common technology theme and something I think as a society we're going to have to deal with as more jobs uh, get taken over essentially by machines. But for Amazon, they're trying to address very significant inflationary pressure in delivery. And I think the acquisition of Zooks is something that can help them in, toward that end. What about the company's media business? It can sometimes fly under the radar, including in the media businesses, Amazon Prime Video, Twitch, Amazon Music. Now, Laura Martin at Needham, she estimates that the media business is worth north of $500 billion. Uh, what's your view? My view is as follows. There's a lot of individual components within the media business. And I would argue on a relative basis, if you think about the amount of capital that Amazon has put into proprietary video programming, um, I think that's one of Amazon's biggest failures. It hasn't had mm. a breakthrough hit show like others have. And so in that regard, I think that the proprietary content effort is still a work in progress. Now, that aside, Amazon Fire TV platform, I think, is fantastic. And they're just starting to realize new ways to monetize it. So we do a proprietary advertising-based video on demand uh, data effort. And for that effort, we watch the same movie on Roku, IMDB TV, which is Amazon's AVOD, and Crackle, which is part of Chicken Soup for the Soul. And we make note of who's advertising on the platform. And in the case of Amazon's IMDB TV, there's a lot of self-promotion. And in addition to the self-promotion, we're noticing Hershey and Geico and Progressive. Mm. And a lot of these same advertisers you see on linear television are on the OTT effort for Amazon. And I would say, stepping back a minute, the reason I think that people are so excited about the media business for Amazon is the company has successfully swum, sw uh, swam outside its swim lane to the extent that they're doing better in advertising, for example, than Facebook and Google are doing in e-commerce. Now, wow. that said, our data suggests that most of the success to date is advertising on their e-commerce platform and not necessarily their video advertising. So I still think they have an opportunity to improve their video advertising over time. So this potential for their proprietary content and then for advertising revenue from video content in general, I think that's what would potentially support a large valuation for its media operations. So its media operation these days is less about getting people to join Prime and more about creating these other sources of revenue based on advertising. Because for years, Prime Video was about making the Prime subscription at $79, at $99, and $119 more valuable to the person paying it because those Prime customers shop more frequently, they buy more expensive items, and they just spend more money on Amazon. I think that element is still at play at the same time when you go to the Amazon Fire TV platform, you can sign up for HBO. You can sign up for Disney Plus. 
you can sign up for Apple TV Plus. So in that regard, I think there it's you know it's comparable to the original uh, business model for Apple TV, and it's very comparable to Roku, which is this is a conduit for consumers to watch programming, including the free stuff that's part of their Prime membership, as you pointed out. But it's also a mechanism for pay-per-view. It's mm. a mechanism for watching even new movies now that physical theaters are closed to varying degrees, things of that nature. And in that regard, I think it's a very successful venture for Amazon. What about sports? How do sports play into this? Because Amazon has been increasing its offerings of live sports. How valuable so gonna, is live sports? Go ahead. Yep, I'm going to talk about it in two different ways. Okay. So arguably, Amazon has the most valuable sports video channel uh, in technology with Twitch. The difference, uh. is, the difference is that most people my age don't think of it that way. So more consumers engage and watch esports events than most major legacy sporting events. Maybe not the Super Bowl. Okay, so wait, so so repeat that for people who 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 are not watching esports. Yes, so most consumers uh, watch esports to a greater extent than they do most legacy sports, such as basketball or baseball, all the sports that I grew up with uh, as a kid and as a young adult, and that's why it was under the radar. But when Microsoft decided to exit uh, their competitor to Twitch, that was great news for Amazon, in my opinion. Now, to your point on Thursday night football and things of that nature, I do think we're going to see more uh, legacy sports broadcast on Amazon's platform. But I think, for example, and maybe this is too fine of point, that by picking Thursday night football instead of Sunday football or Monday night football, I would argue Amazon was essentially dipping its toe, picking the least expensive uh, football content to broadcast on its platform. But I do think there's an opportunity over time, uh, though it's a little challenging right now because a lot of the legacy sports are temporarily shut down. And it'll be interesting to see if Major League Baseball comes back. Yeah, it's certainly well and a good time to uh, to have Twitch, certainly, because so many people are at home gaming right now. D.A. Davidson's Tom Forte. Great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me anytime. Amazon's media business is loaded with potential. The acceleration of cord cutting, which has only sped up during the pandemic, leaves traditional cable companies vulnerable and gives Amazon a chance to capture a larger audience for its Prime Video and Twitch content. Live sports are arguably cable companies' last line of defense against the mass exodus to streaming services, but big tech is encroaching on that territory as well. We spoke to John Orand, media reporter at Sports Business Journal, about Big Tech's experiment with live sports and why it could be easier said than done. John, thanks so much for taking the time and joining us on the Voices of Wall Street podcast. Happy to do it. I've been impressed with what I've seen coming from you guys so far, so I'm, I'm uh, thrilled to be here. Oh, well, thanks so much. We're having a fun time. And I want to talk about something that is is that I'm really passionate about. I've been covering cord cutting for years, the future 
of so-called TV skinny bundles in the way that tech companies like Amazon and more have been eager to get into traditional sports broadcasting. So as a media reporter, how worried should these incumbent media networks be about big tech's ambitions to break into live sports broadcasting? Well, you know, during every downturn that, that we've seen in the economy, you know, back in like 2008, back in 2001 and two, uh, people are stuck in their homes. They don't have much discretionary income and cable systems actually saw big increases in terms of uh, their, their subscribers. Um, you know, pe people viewed paying for cable to be affordable. It was something that they wanted to do. And so coming into this economic downturn, we had two different trends. We had that trend of, of, uh, of uh, economic downturns being good for, you know, traditional MSOs or MVPDs, I guess they're called now. And, uh, but along with that, you, you've had the cord cutting trend, which has really been going on since 2013. And so I've been really interested to see what's going to happen with this downturn, is it going to is it going to accelerate the cord cutting trend, or is cable going to uh, going to ward that off as they have in the, in past um, economic downturns? And it appears that there's a uh, that, that the cord cutting trend is winning out by far, uh, judging by the first round of the first quarter uh, earnings reports that came out, and everything I've I've seen suggests that the second quarter is going to be even more devastating for the uh, uh, for, for for the cord cutting numbers. And what that means for the legacy traditional TV companies is that they're going to be, be making a lot less money. They're getting a lot less revenue from that revenue stream. They've always been set up as sort of a dual revenue stream, whereas traditional broadcast networks used to be just advertising. Then all, the, all of a sudden you have the uh, cable networks like ESPN sells advertising, but it also gets you know right around 8 or $9 per subscriber per month from Comcast or Charter or DirecTV, you know, you, you, you name it. If all of a sudden that eight or nine dollars is going from, you know, a hundred million subscribers to now about 80 million subscribers, that's a, that's a big chunk. Uh, and so it's a, that's one of the things to look at. And that's where when we talk about big, big tech, that's where we can see that opening because big tech, if they're going to get into sports, they don't have those that dual revenue stream just yet. And so they have to sort of either figure that out or wait until traditional legacy media doesn't doesn't have that dual dual revenue stream that they, that they've been uh, sort of dining off of for the past couple of decades. Right. Well, but what they do have though are these really really deep pockets to experiment and to pay top dollar for rights to different sports leagues to perhaps complement their retail business or or complement. Uh, their search and advertising businesses without sort of the incumbent legacy costs that come along with, with being an MVPD, right? Like having to maintain lines into people's homes and, and, and having to actually have contracts with Disney to make sure that you are giving them eight bucks for every ESPN subscriber. Right. And I think that the, the word that you used that I hang on is experiment. And I think what we've seen so far is experimentation. And uh, so far for big tech, Apple hasn't really done anything yet. They've, they, they've had some talks here and there. Facebook has really not done anything significant with, with live sports. They have a couple of, uh, uh, they had a couple of really small deals, you know, daytime deals with uh, MLB. 
that th that they sort of experimented with. Twitter had you know they they've done some experimentation. The the big one out there is is Amazon, mm. and it doesn't appear that that Amazon to date is is willing to spend what say an ESPN or an NBC or a Fox is willing to spend on an NFL package or on an NBA package, but they are willing to be very opportunistic and get in and, and do that, thir that Thursday night football where, okay, Fox will pay the, the majority of it, but they'll pay some and, and, and be able to experiment with sports. They're doing a lot more internationally. I think that what, what you're seeing, uh, what they're doing in, in, uh, London, in England uh, is interesting to me where the, uh, English Premier League rights came up, and instead of going after, you know, a big package of rights, they basically said, you know, we're just going to take all the games on Boxing Day, so they they're going to take a one day of rights, and they're going to leave the rest of the season to sort of the legacy media companies, and right now that's what they're doing. So people all the time, and I I'm I'm guilty of this as anybody. They always say what you say. Well, they have deep pockets. Well, Jeff Bezos doesn't want to lose money any more than anybody else. So I think that they're really waiting to see when, when they can, um, if not make money, not lose as much money as they would be expecting to lose if they were to spend as much as a legacy TV network in terms of going after those rights. Okay. So for people listening right now who may not be totally familiar with the intricacies of what you can watch on, on, on what, or where you can watch, especially at a time when, when traditional sports are pretty much on hold because of the pandemic. Give us an idea of, of, of the layout of the landscape right now. And then also what you think it could look like perhaps a decade from now. Are we going to be watching MLB games on Facebook? Boy, a decade from now, I have no clue. That's a great question. I, I don't know what we're going to watch four, uh, four months from now once we get out, outside of the pandemic. Yeah, I hope Hopefully that's four months from now. Pandemic. Yeah. But right now, uh, you know, uh, Facebook had they, they show some college football games. They show some uh, uh, major league baseball games. Uh, Twitter had a deal a couple of years ago uh, with uh, the Thursday night football deal that that went to Amazon. Basically, they they want to do things to um, Facebook and Twitter want to do things that are more uh, complementary to the traditional TV networks, and so they 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 want to they view themselves as sort of partners. Uh, to to the traditional TV networks, and they don't want to get into bidding wars with them. Amazon is a is a is a little bit different. They are partnering on the uh, on the Thursday night football, but they're the ones that you know they have Prime Video. They they have a sports uh, group that's led by a uh, Marie Donahue, a former uh, top ESPN executive. Uh, so they they uh, they appear to be very serious about it. Apple is a big wild card. They just hired somebody called Jim DiLorenzo, who used to be at Amazon to run their sports group as well. So they are looking at sports, but right now their sports, they, they aren't doing what ESPN and Turner are doing, which is buying the entire season's worth of NBA games and splitting it uh, among them. And they're not quite doing what uh, regional sports networks are doing, which is buying an entire season's worth of, of games. Um, the big question, if I were uh, at a league or if I were at a, uh, um, at a team right now, is as you're seeing cord cutting take hold, what is the minimum number that, that where you're going to sort of try to jump off and then, you know, go direct to consumer or go, go streaming, you know, and uh, over the top. And nobody, nobody has the answer to that yet. Uh, but that's one of the things to look at. 
the other thing I, I I'll tell you is that as as the cable sub, uh, universe is tr is shrinking and cord cutting is 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 taking off, it is making the NFL and college football and college and and college basketball, uh, the NBA and MLB and probably the NHL as well. You, you might be able to throw a couple other ones in there like golf majors, but it's making that content so much more valuable to uh, to TV networks. And so mm. paradoxically, TV networks will be paying a lot more even though they have, they're, they're getting in less revenue because right now live sports and live event programming is the only thing keeping people tethered to the cord. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, I always bring up my, you know, pandemic, uh, my family during the pandemic, you know, we're not watching traditional cable. We're watching Netflix. We're watching Hulu. We're watching Amazon prime. Uh, we're streaming a, a ton and we're binge watching and it's, it's, we're not going to discovery to, to watch, um, you know, one of those documentaries we're watching it on demand. Same thing with ESPN without live sports. So the TV executives really view live sports as, as, as a must-have, as a need-to-have. So at least for the next cycle of rights deals, I think that you're going to see TV networks really, really get in there and uh, and and bid them up. And if the cord cutting trend goes go cuts uh, deeper than than people think, you know, n all bets are off for the yeah. You said ten years from now, yeah, all bets are off for for then. Who knows what what ESPN is even going to look like then? Well, it's so interesting that, that you talk about your own your own family's habits because I think about what we've been doing during the pandemic and we have access to a full cable package and we never watch it. Even something like HBO where I could go to, you know, spectrum on demand and, and find whatever I want to watch on HBO, or I could do it on the Roku through HBO go the authenticated TV app that, you know, this is a different podcast, but that is being canceled at the end of the month because of HBO max. And it's so much easier to watch what I want to watch using the Roku interface and the third party app, uh, from HBO Go. It's like these cable systems are so antiquated, they're so old, and they're not user-friendly. And I think that creates an opportunity for tech companies to come in and, and go direct to consumer and also networks to go direct con to consumer because I want to I just drill down on ESPN, sort of the elephant in the room here. It's the most profitable cable network asset for, for the parent company, Disney. And it certainly, as you mentioned, has a lot at stake as consumers continue to cut the cord. Goldman says that ESPN subscriber base could drop by half as non-sports fans move away from cable and go towards streaming services that may not include ESPN. Now, ESPN does have ESPN Plus out already to complement, you know, traditional ESPN fans. But do you expect Disney to successfully pivot to a post-cable environment? Because that certainly sounds like it's where we're heading. Uh, and, and that certainly is the bet behind Disney Plus and ESPN Plus and, and, and Hulu. And I and I, I give uh, Bob Iger and Disney a ton of credit. Uh, it's hard to talk about, about Disney right now in the middle of a pandemic when the, the, they're taking on water from all sectors of, uh, of their business. But before the pandemic hit, they the, launching ESPN Plus and doing all the rights deals that they did for ESPN Plus and bringing in all those sports was uh, was a sign that cord cutting is is real it's serious and it's going to eventually cut into you know traditional television i think that you know we're talking right now on a wednesday afternoon when uh peacock uh, just launched um and i know you wanted to drill down deep on on espn but peacock is uh 
you know, sort of uh, Comcast answer to Netflix and, and Hulu and all that. But they uh, they're doing a lot more. They're among the only streaming companies that's, that, that are doing anything with live sports. other right. than uh, ESPN Plus, of course. And I think that that as well, if you take a look at Comcast with NBC and NBC Sports Network, I mean, they their business is predicated on keeping um you know a traditional cable system up and running and and, and afloat and they're, they're hedging their bet right now uh, on that as well so i think that you know you can certainly see where these trend lines are happening um I, again the the big the, the only reason i'm not jumping on that and saying oh well 10 years you're going to be watching all sports on an app you know stream through ESPN plus or, or, or Peacock or who knows what the only reason I'm hesitating from doing that is I still don't know wh- where the floor is for the cord cutting. What, what is, what, what is a, you know, what is a cable universe going to look like? Because right now for leagues, that's such good, easy money that goes out to, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, mm. for, for, for uh, me- traditional media companies. It's a very, it, it, it prints money. I mean, it's a very good business for them. Uh, and so the, the whole question is how far that falls. Yeah. And the problem is I think consumers in the past few years have really lost patience with, with spending 120 bucks a month on a cable package and when they could get potentially from a skinny bundle. And those prices have gone up too, because the content companies are just charging a lot of money. I can tell you, I, I write about sports media. I make my living from sports media, essentially my wife every, every two months is, pulls up the Xfinity bill we get. And we're like, why are we, why are we paying for this? Every, I, I always have to, I mean, those are conversations that are happening all the time. And that, you know, I'm, a, I write about it. So I guess you could put me as like a hardcore sports fan, you know, they're losing the casual fans and, and, and the casual fans are, are, are definitely cutting the cord. And that's a, uh, that spells, you know, th- that makes me a little bit pessimistic. Well, I think you could make a pretty good case to expense this to your boss because you need to have it for. <laughs> but you know, I'm it's sending a, it's, him the link to this uh, to this pod. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. I think that's a fair case to be made. <laughs> but it's so funny you mentioned Xfinity, and we're talking about Peacock and and the company Comcast, right? Those are all these are all Comcast owned entities, and the thing that Comcast has that other media companies don't necessarily have is that direct relationship with the consumer because of the pipes that come into your home. So if you were to quit, you know, Comcast as a, as a, as a content provider to you, you'd still likely be paying Comcast for your internet. So if you're getting Peacock through Comcast and you're getting internet through Comcast, then at the end of the day, Comcast is probably okay with you not getting a, a, an MVP being, being your MVPD, right? They're more than okay with that. In fact, they, the, uh, if they shed, I, you know, the Moffat uh, Nathanson has been doing uh, great work on this. Yeah, for years. Yeah, uh, if they shed a video subscriber, they make money. Right now, I mean, ESPN is making nine dollars per subscriber per month. Fox, uh, Fox uh, broadcast and FS1 is you know making multiple dollars off that. Go through CBS, all of them. Like all of a sudden, the money that they're paying wholesale for these networks, like they're not making anything back. It's just sort of like almost a lost leader to to keep people like me tethered to them. But they they're not making a ton of money off me. Fascinating stuff, John. Uh, so great to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time. I really enjoyed it. Keep up the great work. I really, like I said, I I, I love your site. I and I, I've just recently been following you on Twitter, so it's been uh, been a lot of fun. Thanks so much, John. Bye. 
So the big question, will the pandemic accelerate the trend of cord cutting? Will we soon be in a world where we're getting all of our content directly from the content providers? We'll have to wait and see. Thanks so much for listening to the Voices of Wall Street podcast. We'll see you next time.